All right, Hosea chapter 4. I am not doing a dig into each verse. We're doing an overview, so it's going to be maybe a little uncomfortable or at least different than what you're used to in a, a sermon. This is an overview of these chapters, Hosea 4 to 14. So the title or the introduction, the summary of chapter 4, as you see on your outline, is the people just don't get it. So as a reminder of chapters 1 to 3, we've completed the story Uh, the basic story of the tragic marriage of Hosea and how it demonstrated for us the relationship between the people and God. Now in chapter 4, we get that applied to us. There's this formal accusation here in chapter 4 from God to the people. In what ways are you, Gomer? In what ways are we, the people of God, acting like Gomer did? How have we committed spiritual adultery? So here's verses 1 to 2 of Hosea chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Hosea 4, 1-2. So as the chapter unfolds, chapter 4, you'll see three parts to this accusation from God to the people. Three things the people failed to do. Number one, not faithful to God. You see it in the verses I just read. Number two, not devoted to God or steadfast love back towards God, committed covenant love to God. And third, not really knowing God, no knowledge of God. You see those three in the verses we just read. So the chapter unfolds along the lines of those three core accusations. Um, it's the same accusation Paul brought in Romans 1, as I'll reference in a little bit. Now skip to verse 6, Hosea 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Maybe you've heard that phrase. I'm trying to bring out to you especially the phrases that you would have heard from each of our minor prophets and uh, put those in context for your better understanding of the well-known phrases. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, and verse 6 continues, Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me, and since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Now listen for the knowing of God and the knowledge of God. And this verse we'll read next. This is from Romans 1, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Romans 1, 28. So the commonality of Hosea 4 and Romans 1 is that God revealed himself. We should have knowledge of God. Hosea said that the Jews who had some revelation of God, yet ended up with no knowledge of God. So Paul is saying the same thing to now Gentiles who had less revelation than the Jewish people of old did. But even the Gentiles know there is a God and that he's powerful. Those are the things that Paul goes on to say in Romans 1. How much more should the people of Israel of old have known God? They know about God, they know him, Israel knew God as the Holy One from his law. They knew about him being true to his own covenant promises. Having known God, they then turned from that knowledge of God and suppressed it. So this is what people don't get, the title of Hosea 4. People don't get it. They don't get it. They have this point all wrong. Talk to your coworkers. Talk to unsaved neighbors. Talk to extended family members who don't know Christ. So many people blame God for creating a hell and putting people in it for having judgment at all because the common person thinks that most people are innocent enough and therefore they ought not to be condemned. 
Who does God think he is to condemn anybody? Isn't he in the business of forgiving anyway? How are those poor people supposed to know? So that false assumption is that people don't have the knowledge of God. They're making the same error and mistake Hosea was saying to his people, making the same error and mistake Paul was saying to his people in Romans 1. So the conclusion today is the same. The common person thinks that God's not fair. They're saying God is the problem because he condemns those poor people who couldn't help it. But both Hosea and Paul disagree. God's word shows us, both Old Testament and New Testament, that we're on solid ground to have the theology we have. God gave them knowledge, but they didn't like the direction in which the knowledge was taking them and what they had to say no to and what they had to say yes to and how they had to define things. They didn't want to define things the way God defines things, so they reject the whole mess. And so God had a rightful claim to them, and they didn't want to accept that claim, so they reject God and all of God's values and pretended they don't know that he exists. What God, they start to say. That's Gomer. Take yourself back into the mini theater. Gomer had a husband who had a rightful claim to her. She didn't want to accept that claim. She rejected her husband, went out to other lovers, and pretended she didn't know that her husband existed. What husband? See, she takes her ring off, as it were, right? I'm going to play as if I don't have a husband. Adultery, that's what we're doing. Play as if we don't have a God. Spiritual adultery. So the people of Israel wanted to keep on sinning. Uh, They did not want to be told by prophets that they were sinning. Now look uh, look at verses 10 to 14. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. See again on the theme of knowledge. Verse 12, my people inquire of a piece of wood. In other words, they pray to their statues. And their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they've left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. So why did Gomer leave Hosea? She wants feasts and fun. Today we call it partying. These were incompatible with a marriage to Hosea, so she left Hosea. Why do people leave God? They want feasts and fun. Today we call it partying. They're incompatible with the worship of God, walking with God, so they throw out God. People seek food, sex, wealth, and something spiritual. They always want something spiritual. But if we don't have God and holy living, these things become empty. Plenty of food, but doesn't satisfy. Feels like effort just to eat. Plenty of sex, but not satisfied to keep on trying different forms. Plenty of money, but never enough. Plenty of spiritual and religious talk, but the greatest questions of life go unanswered, and deep down they know it. Plenty of spiritual talk, all under superstition, and they wonder why God's not blessing them, but they never bring that up. God will not even bother to punish them because they'll make themselves miserable with their lifestyles. The way they're living is their own worst punishment, verse 14, as we just read. Uh, No, I'm sorry, we didn't read that. Let me read it now, verse 14. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. See again, people without understanding, the knowledge theme. 
Paul made the same point. Because people consciously suppress the knowledge of God, then God will respond with wrath. Here's the kicker. What form does wrath take? Moral decline. Same in Hosea 4, verse 19. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. It's a whirlwind. They'll be swept away into falsehood. This is what happened in ancient Israel in Hosea's day. It's what happened in Paul's day. It's what's happening in our day. How does spiritual decline start? When people who know God reject God. At that moment, they start going downhill. Why? When the knowledge of the true God is refused, inevitably, false gods come in to take his place. People believe in false religion. They start talking a lot about karma, the universe, other superstitions like good luck and bad luck and being impacted by black cats and ladders, knocking on wood, throwing salt over your shoulder, and Friday the 13th. Listen to your coworkers. They're all talking about it. Paul put it this way, Romans 1.22, claiming to be wise, they love to tell you how the universe works, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, Romans 1.22-23. So here in Hosea 4, verse 15, the mention of Gilgal and Beth-Avon is significant. After the death of King Solomon, the king divided into, kingdom divided into two kingdoms, north and south. The temple was in the south. So the king in the north thought his hold on his kingdom would weaken if people traveled to the south regularly to worship in the temple. What does he do? He sets up competing worship spots in his territory, Bethel and Gilgal, which was against God's law, Need I even say, the king encouraged his people in the north to worship at these places, and guess what that led to? Idolatry. God was so clear here. Enter not into Gilgal, nor up to Beth-Avon. Don't do that. Same for the Christians in Rome in Paul's day, and Christians in our city in our day. Let us hear God's word and respond to it. Let us not enter false and shallow spiritual beliefs that are all around us as alternates for the true God. That's chapter 4, pressing forward. Chapter 5, could the story get any darker? In contrast to chapter 4, where knowledge of God was a theme and it was missing, now look at chapter 5, verse 3, where God says, I know Ephraim. By the way, Ephraim is another word for the ten tribes. Israel. Ephraim, Israel. That's shorthand, just so you understand. Quick version. So God knew about their prostitution. He knows them. He knows them in their sin. We have a desire to be known by God but not to be known too thoroughly. Don't look too close, Lord. We each have something to hide from God because we're not what we ought to be. And the statement of Hosea was later echoed by the writer to the Hebrews, Hebrews 4.13, No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Hebrews 4.13. We can't hide from God. We can't see, we can't face God with the sins that we have. We have a real problem. We have a real dilemma. All we can do is come to God on the basis of the atonement of Christ. Israel was not willing to face the fact that God did know them. Verse 3, defiled. Verse 4, they did not know the Lord. Verse 5, pride and guilt. Verse 6, seek the Lord but not finding him because he has withdrawn. Now, if your coworker said, that's not fair, see, God withdrew. How could their situation get darker than God withdrawing? Their worship was perhaps moving on a human scale, but had nothing to do with God. So all their worship is useless, worthless. 
Is our worship bringing us into the fellowship of the living God? If not, we turn from whatever sin is keeping us from God's presence and come to him by faith in Christ. Don't trust in other things instead. Look at verse 13 now, Hosea 5.13. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria. Oops. It should say Ephraim went to the Lord. No, Ephraim went to a neighboring pagan country and said, could you guys please protect us? Went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. Hosea 5.13. They're saying they trusted in God. But for military security, they trust in Assyria, this alliance with a godless, powerful politician around them. There's another uh, knowledge of God, knowledge of his ways with sinner. Verse 12, God is like a moth to his people. But verse 14, he's like a lion to his people. So which is it? Sometimes you read the prophets and it's like watching a, a slideshow. Now he's a moth, now he's a lion. What is going on? Which is it? Does God relate to us like a moth or like a lion? He's like a moth first, fluttering near the corner. You're walking on a summer evening. It distracts you from the path. You're sitting on your deck and there's a moth by the light. Or a moth in your closet eating a hole in your wedding clothes and and God destroys what we value. All this moth activity is meant to lead us back to him, to distract us from the wrong path we're on. But if it doesn't work... We don't repent and get back to God. God's love progresses forward to verse 14 where he becomes like a lion who will attack us with no one to rescue. Suddenly, fear grips us. We run from the wrong path right back to God, the right path. At least that's what we're supposed to do because the moth didn't get our attention. The lion gets our attention. And if that doesn't work, verse 15 shows us that God will abandon us to distress until we earnestly seek God again. That's chapter 5. Moving on to chapter 6, God is looking for the genuine. So the people had sinned and they started to suffer for it. So what do they say? Chapter 6, 1, come, let us return to the Lord. Ah, should we all just collectively ah, breathe a sigh of relief? They're coming back to God. This is the moment, right? Gomer's returning. Famous words. Uh, repeat this in chapter 6, verse 3. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. Maybe you've heard that phrase. That's from Hosea. Is this genuine, though? I mean, Hey, Ben, you're being hard-nosed now. Is this genuine? Okay, let's take a look. Right? Vocabulary. Verse 1, return. Verse 3, know the Lord. But something's missing. Can you find it? I'll give you a hint. I'll give you a hint. A confession is a confession of what? (laughs) Confession of guilt. Right. Confession of sin. Is there any guilt mentioned? Is there any sin mentioned? None. It's not a true confession. He's looking for genuine confession. You've got to admit it. To follow God, we have to grapple with our sin. In order to truly repent, we must become aware of ourselves and our wrongdoing and genuine in our turning from sinful ways back to God and his ways. Any personal relating to God is missing in verses 1 to 3. God seems to them like a vending machine. Put in coins, get a snack. God is a lion, tears us in order to heal us. So just like the sun comes up in the morning, the rain comes in springtime, God is going to revive us. They presume God's job is to forgive. You just got to stay away from him for a couple days. He'll, he'll cool off, and then he'll start blessing us again. You know, this is how God's pattern. He gets really upset about stuff for a few days. Then he cools off. It seems automatic to them. That's their understanding of God. Verse 4, God asks uh, what he's going to do with them. Verse 6 is a well-known phrase because Jesus later quoted it. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You can't just go through the motions of religion and expect God to get over it. 
There has to be a basis on which we relate to God again. They had depersonalized God. God is not some great big scientific question that's always expected to work. Put in the right ingredients in the jar, out comes this scientific result. They're using God. Christians can sing hymns, give money, serve on committees, do good deeds in the community, but all without finding God himself. Verse 7, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. What did Adam do? He ate what he's not supposed to eat. That's wrong. What are you going to do about the wrong? You just died right there. Your whole relationship to God is, is cooked. What did he do next? Tried to cover it up. Sin number two. Adam blamed Eve. Sin number three. Adam, Eve blamed the serpent. Now she's in on it. She ate. She blamed someone else. So sins become more and more numerous very fast. Verse 8, Gilead is a city of evildoers. Yet in verse 11, God points to a future time when he will restore the fortunes of my people. Ding, 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 right? Remember the big theme for prophets? Judgment unto restoration. Chapter 7. God's people are looking in every direction except toward God. God remembers all their evil, verse 2. Verse 4, they're all adulterers. Verses 4 to 7, there's an image of an overheated oven that's repeated, which refers to their inordinate desires as adulterers that drive them and then consume them. You know what I'm referring to. God is showing that these actions are not harmless when done between consenting adults, as is the modern theory today. Oh, yeah, you can be with whatever gender, whatever persons, any which way. It's all okay as long as you're not hurting someone, right? No way, that's not the theory. That's not true. These actions, as verses 4 to 7 say, are inflamed by sin, and they destroy the persons involved. It reminds us of the story of Gomer, which is our mega theme. And that's the lesson about ourselves. Verse 8 describes a flat cake burned on one side, undone raw on the other. Anybody for lunch? (laughs) Burned on one side, raw on the other. Gross both ways. They're a useless flat cake that makes the eater sick. They're presenting this to God? Oh, we're burned on one side, undone on the other. Would you like some? And God is grossed out. Verse 9, he's, Israel's not aware of itself, not noticing that strength has gone, gray hairs have come. Sin kept them from realizing as a nation they're in old age, spiritually elderly, if you will, declining strength in their walk with God, morally weaker and weaker, not aware of it. Other people looking at us can see our gray hairs, but we don't realize it. It's sadly revealed about Samson in Judges 16.20. He did not know the Lord had left him. That's true about the nation of Israel. They didn't know that God was not with them. Verse 11, Israel's like a dove, a dove easily deceived. Israel had forsaken God, didn't know where to turn. It tells us they called to Egypt, went to Assyria instead of returning to God. Verse 12, he'll discipline them. Verse 13, woe to them, destruction to them. Verse 14, they don't cry to me from the heart. Where's the genuine turning to God? They rebel against me, says God. Finally, in verse 16, they're like a treacherous bow and arrow. They're dangerous. If you trust in a broken, misfunctioning weapon, your enemies will overtake you. You might even hurt yourself. God's people looked everywhere except to God. We have to repent of our actual sins, turn to Jesus. 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's chapter 7. 
We're on chapter 8. Sowing the wind, weeping the whirlwind. One of the famous phrases from Hosea is reap the whirlwind. It's here in chapter 8, verse 7. What produces wind? Tornadoes, whirlwinds, hurricanes. I don't know. Take a class from a weatherman. I'm just a pastor. (laughs) But what produces spiritual tornadoes? We have it right here in this chapter. Hosea chapter 8. Average sins, daily common sins, like neglecting our walk with God or forgetting God or trusting in our own resources instead. It seems so small at the beginning, but it grows big quick. It ends in destruction. A little bit of wind spins into a whirlwind. That's the meaning of the phrase, sow the wind, reap the whirlwind. Verse 1, they transgress my covenant. Verse 2, they say to God, my God, we, Israel, know you. No, they don't. Verse 4, they made kings, but not through me. With silver and gold, they made idols. Verse 6, a craftsman made that idol. It's not God. Hello. Verse 7, sow the wind, reap the whirlwind we just talked about. Verse 9, they have gone up to Assyria. (laughs) Again. Verse 10, they hire allies among the nations. Verse 11, they're multiplying altars for sinning. Verse 13, as for my sacrificial offerings, the Lord does not accept them. Verse, um, after these specifics are spelled out, Uh, Chapter 9, verse 14 will say, for Israel has forgotten his maker. Not that they forget there is a God. Not that they forget who is the true and living God. That's not the meaning of the word forget. No one forgets in that absolute intellectual sense. We establish that from Romans 1. Everybody knows there's a God. They just suppress that truth, right? We have inescapable knowledge of God's existence and his power. What the word forget is referring to is that a habit of intentional neglect that the people knew God intellectually and pushed him aside, they had allowed other lesser things to become central in their lives. It's a moral forgetting of God. It's pushing God aside intentionally so that we can have the ethic we want. That's how people arrive at wrong definitions of gender, wrong definitions of marriage, and so on, of, of holiness. A true worship of God, full obedience of God are pushed aside. When people are, are going about their daily lives, the word of God does not provide part of their calculation. i got to press on. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 6, tell about God withdrawing and a prophecy of what is coming to them as a result of his departure. Verse 5, there's a day-appointed festival and a day of the feast to the Lord. It's probably the autumn festival of Sakoth, celebrating the harvest, like we would have right about now or soon. Harvesting, feasting, joy, even dancing. No one's thinking of disaster they have Hosea come and speak at the Harvest Home Dinner. Hey, everybody welcome Prophet Hosea. He steps up in front of everybody. And on that occasion, verses 1 to 6, do not rejoice. Verse 2, threshing floor shall not feed them. Verse 3, you shall not even remain in the Holy Land. Verse 4, your sacrifices of wine and bread will not be accepted in the house of the Lord. Verse 5, what will you do? Verse 6, destruction. Amen, let's close in prayer. Like, who invited this guy to speak at the Harvest Home Dinner? Nobody's thinking about not even even be able to stay in the land. Clearly, God's blessing us. Look at all the crops. We're celebrating the abundance of harvest, and God has clearly given us that. What is the matter with this guy, Hosea? Verses 7 to 13 provide proof from the behavior of the people. Hosea is spot on. Verse 7, the days of punishment have come. Prophet is a fool. That's what they say. But it means they thought Hosea is crazy. They rejected his message. God is obviously blessing Verse 8, they become hostile toward Hosea, set snares, hate him in the temple. Verse 9, they've corrupted themselves, so God will punish. Verse 10, I found Israel, 
Like the first fruit of the fig tree in the first season, I saw your fathers, but they consecrated themselves to a thing of shame, became detestable. Verse 11, God starts to give them these results. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Verse 12 is horrible. Listen to this. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Verse 14 is a very shortened prayer by Hosea. Hosea starts and finds it difficult to know what to pray. You ever get there? Dear Lord, um, right, I don't know what to pray. He's, he's starting that way. Look at verse 14. Give them, O Lord, big, big pause. He literally asks, what will you give them? Then he says this strange answer. Give them a miscarrying woman dry breasts? Wait, what? That, that's never been in a prayer request I've ever heard. What is going on? That was the best prayer that Hosea could come up with. Because when he asks, what will you give? He knows exactly what God will give. Because God is coming with such fiery judgment, at least the misery would be limited if there were no more children. Since the judgment of God is soon coming on these people, let's add no more babies to the scene because it's going to be horrid. That's what he's saying. Give them a miscarrying womb. Again, verse 14, give them, O Lord, what will you give? We know the answer. Hosea know the answer. Judgment. That's how chapter 9 concludes. Verses 15 to 17 are God's final word on the subject. Verse 15, God hated them, wickedness of their deeds. He'll drive out, out of his house. They'll bear no fruit. God says that children born to them will be put to death. Verse 17, because they have not listened to God. What's the result? They shall be wanderers among the nations. Chapter 10. Now is the time to seek the Lord, but will she? Look, look down to... That's my timer. I gotta, I gotta get to chapter 11. I told myself I've got to do chapter 11, and I've got to do chapter 14, no matter what happens. So let me make a few comments on chapter 10, and we'll go to chapter 11 pretty fast. Um, chapter 10, now is the time to seek the Lord, but will she? Look at verse 12. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord. Uh, we start verse 1 with a whole vineyard idea. You'll remi- m- m- remember that from Hosea, or Isaiah 5, Ezekiel 15, Psalm 50. Always the, the vines are bad. All the analogy of the vines are always bad vines. God's an excellent farmer, but the vines are always bad vines. So listen for it here in verse 1. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. These are people who make money, and instead of serving God with it, they serve themselves. Their hearts are false. They don't fear God, verse 3. They have empty oaths, and they make covenants, verse 4. <clears throat> Going through the motions, they'll say another famous phrase, verse 8. They shall say to the mountains, cover us, to the hills, fall on us. That should sound familiar. Verses 11 to 15 end with a warning to seek God now, because now is the time before God's judgment strikes. All right, chapter 11. I'm on target. I'm on time. We, we can do this. All right, chapter 11. This is a new movement in the play. Remember our play? Verses 1 to 3 in mini theater? Hosea and Gomer, the whole story? Uh, rather than depending on us or depending on Israel to seek God and love God, God is seeking us and God is loving us. We go back to the story of the marriage of Hosea and Gomer as a mini theater. Let me review the mini theater. Surprising beginning. Hosea is asked to marry an unfaithful wife, Gomer. Initial time of love and happiness, a baby, happy home, yay, happily ever after. It starts out that way, a time of unfaithfulness. Gomer was spinning downward. 
Hosea was loving her, providing for her. She's still spinning out of control. She's an addict, we would say. However, Gomer's promiscuity led her lower and lower into poverty, isolation, and even slavery. Then, God surprisingly asks Hosea to purchase Gomer on the open slave market, thereby making her his forever. On the way home, Hosea says to her in the chariot or whatever, right, or walking, Chapter 3, verse 3, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so I will also be to you. Following on that, chapters 4 to 10 primarily have dealt with discipline and the struggle of Hosea to retain and retrain Gomer to live at home with him, just like the struggle of God to retain his people and get them to live in worshiping and serving God. Okay? Now chapter 11, the story advances. We've got a new day, Okay? Judgment and discipline is still present, but now the emphasis is God's victorious love, his unquenchable love. Chapter 11, Hosea writes about God's love in Israel's past, present, and future, and in each case there are surprises which make good theater. The love of God does not operate the way we expect. Why? Because we're not actually talking about the love of a man, Hosea, to a woman, Gomer, his wife. We're actually talking about the love of God for his people. God is utterly unlike us. So we're learning something significant about the holy God, the creator. Look at verse 9. I am God and not a man, the holy one in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. It's kind of like you're in the theater, and this announcement comes from the the, uh, narrator over the top. Just want to remind everybody, this play is about God, not about Hosea and Gomer. Just remember that. Okay, it's about God. And I am a God, I'm different. So he's saying that the deepest and most true aspect of my character is not wrath, but is love. Did you see that, verse 9? I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. I don't want to ask for a show of hands, but has it sounded like wrath in these last chapters, 4 to 10? He's like, I've got something deeper than wrath. I've got something that's more truly me than wrath. I want to show it to you. Verses 1 to 4 about Israel's past. Verses 5 to 7, Israel's present. Verses 8 to 12 about Israel's future relationship with God. Verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Again, that sounds familiar. It's the Christmas story, Matthew 2.15. A phrase is used to describe how God saved Jesus from the hand of Herod. Out of Egypt I called my son. We're talking here about God's relationship to his people, which is sometimes husband-wife, sometimes father-son. Israel's a son, and later Jesus is the son, so you just have to be able to handle. Sometimes it's a father-son image, and sometimes it's a husband-wife image. It helps me to remember that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that the people of God become the bride of Christ. So you can use both illustrations. And it, it holds together. God the Father relates to Israel as son. God the Son relates to Israel as bride and wife, if that helps you. Either way, the people of God were wayward and in slavery in Egypt. It's a spiritual slavery. Verse 2, the more they were called, the more they went away. Wayward wife, we get that. Wayward son also, we understand. People of God turning from God. So following the Father image now in these first six verses. Verse 3, it was God who taught them to walk like an adult with a toddler. You imagine a toddler with both arms raised and you're walking with the toddler like that. that. God is saying, I remember that. That was me with you. I've loved you from then. 
And you can see our mini theater. If God were abusive or neglectful to the child, it would show one thing. But if he's kind and loving from way back, it shows something else. In the Old Testament, there are only 14 times that God called himself the Father of Israel. This is one of them, and the passage is so moving. Jesus, in contrast, often called God his Father, and that made quite an impression on the disciples. Jesus had read Hosea in this passage, right? He's bringing out this truth as he... I I ask you to compare Hosea 11, 1 to 4, or 1 to 6, about the father-son relationship, and then read Matthew 2. And then read Matthew 6. <clears throat> i got to press on. So despite God's care of the baby or toddler when young Israel grew older, she turned away from God. Like the prodigal son, she went to a far country. Gomer is, like Gomer, Israel became wayward, and so did I, and so did you. And so stories about sinful humans, it's a story about you. It's a story about me. God's been abundantly gracious to us. He's adopted us into his family. We've turned from him. Starting in verse 5, we get... Sudden flashbacks. Verse 5, Assyria will be their king. They refuse to return to me. Verse 6, the sword rages because of their own counsels. Verse 7, my people are bent on turning away. What would you do? Parent with a wayward child, spouse with a wayward spouse. We're supposed to really be able to relate to this. It's, it's an attainable, uh, uh, accessible story for us. And this is the crisis moment. What happens next? in our mini-theater, we'll show you the most significant thing about the main character, which is God, right? What would God do when his people were bent on turning away from him? Take the image of father to son, I raised you since you were a child, I loved you, or take the image of husband-wife, though you were wayward, I cared for you, I call you back. There's really only two choices, right? When you boil it down, you either give up on them or you don't give up on him. Look at verse 8. How can I give up on you? How can I give you up? My heart recoils within me. This is God. My compassion grows warm and tender. Verse 9. I will not execute my burning anger, nor will I again destroy, for I am God and not a man. I will not operate in wrath. Verse 10. They shall go after the Lord. He'll roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling. Verse 11. I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Verse 12. Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Just when we think all is well, chapter 12, verse 1, Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day. They make a covenant with Assyria. Ah! God demonstrates his love and calls them back. They're right in the same bad activity and soup. More waywardness, more guilt. Oh, boy. Oh, no. The end? Closing prayer? I mean, is, is that the end? Is that... All that God has to give? This God found a way to keep people this wayward his. And it came at great cost. The cost of the death of his innocent eternal son for his wayward people? The cross is the only way to resolve the difficulty in the play, the difficulty in the story, the difficulty in the history of God's people back to the garden, back to Adam, back to Israel. The cross is how God resolves it. God could not give up on his wayward people, but he also had to remain a holy God, demanding holiness of them. He would give us the holiness, forgive our wrongs. He can't lower his standard. His love triumphs. Paul writes it this way, Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What an understatement. And are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, it just means a covering, to be re- a covering to protect us from God's wrath, by his blood to, receive, to be received by faith. For this was to show... I've got to get to chapter 14. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So listen, he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 3, 23 to 26. God said, how can I give up on you? I have compassion for you, but I'm holy. You're putting me in quite a pickle here. (laughs) I tell you what I'll do. I'll give my son for you. Do you know the name Hosea means salvation? It's an early form of Jesus, because Jesus means salvation. Romans, or sorry, Matthew one twenty one. She will bear a son, and you'll call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Nothing we can do to clean ourselves up and make ourselves presentable to God. Pastor Neil Tolzma's second book, Love Matters, page twenty two. Read the depth of what we're finding here in Hosea. Listen to this quote: Why did God not end it? After all, the first man, Adam rejected him. It was in God's power to do so. Why bring any sinner to heaven? The answer is simple, yet profound. God acts this way because God is love. Spot on. All right, skipping to chapter 14 so that we can finish today. I leave you to study chapters 12 and 13 on your own. Here's chapter 14, the death of death and the way home. We're not surprised. The very last chapter, Hosea, is a plea to return to the Lord. Like Hosea gave a plea to Gomer, his wife, to return home, so Hosea now gives a plea to Israel to return to God. Look at Hosea 14.1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. So this chapter is a message that would sustain the people during their coming days of captivity. Uh, don't be confused. Maybe you could look at your chart and see the, the timeline. We're now earlier than what we've been studying as a church in Jeremiah, that Babylonian captivity. We're talking here about an Assyrian captivity, the, the people of, of Israel, of the north. They were about to go into captivity. And during their time of captivity, they will be reminded of what God is like by this message in this chapter. And once they're taken prisoner, they'll wonder if God has cast them aside. God wants them to know in the darkest moments of your isolation in prison and in slave camps, that your punishment is not due to a desire on God's part to abandon you. Instead, quite the opposite, your punishment is due to your sin. And so the way of return stands wide open. Still, what should Gomer say when she's ready to go home to her husband? What should the prodigal son say when he's ready to go home to his father? You remember how when you read Luke 15... He made a speech and he practiced his speech. The pigs heard it a couple times right before he goes home. This is what I'll do. I'll say to my father, I'm not even worthy to be called your son, but can I at least have supper? (laughs) Right? What should Gomer say? What should the prodigal son say? What should Israel say when they're ready finally to return to God? Hosea gives them the speech. God gives them the speech, verses 2 and 3. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, in other words, trust in military might, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. That's the speech. Consider the contrast between that speech, we could call it a confession of sin, 
And what we saw in chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, a fake confession. No mention of sin, right? So you could compare Hosea 6, 1 to 3 with Hosea 14, 1 to 3. This confession is correct and good because it has sin listed. There's an awareness of sin. What they did is sin, and it's serious. They named and specified the sins, trusting Assyria's might, trusting in war horses, turning to statues, and making them into their gods, idols. It's easy to repent of someone else's sins. It's easy to repent generally. What's painfully difficult is to repent of your own sin specifically. And it is so difficult to do that apart from the grace of God enabling us to do it, it's actually impossible for us to do Specific conviction and specific repentance is a gift from God. So we appeal to God for that grace. Lord, convict me. Lord, show me where I've done wrong. Last two verses of Psalm 139. Search me, O God. We ask God to take over our lives and help us. Remember that even a little sin in our lives spoils the areas of faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So when we only repent that we admit there's no spiritual health in us in one area, we're saying, no, Lord, I've, I've messed up everywhere. I must come to God to openly confess and openly express verbally to God what we've thought and done and said that is wrong. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteous. This is the beautiful way Hosea book, the book of Hosea ends. Verse 4, I will heal their apostasy. God will heal their waywardness. Verse 4, I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. God says he'll love them. His love is bigger than his judgment and chastisement. The pattern we remember from Hosea and Gomer, that Hosea loved her even after she fell into slavery. The wreckage of the slavery had impacted the home, the family had touched the children, but Hosea took action to buy her back. That's how God takes action. He loved us even after our fall into sin, after our addiction to slavery to sin, and the wreckage of sin has impacted home and family and has touched other innocent people, but God takes action to buy us back through sending his well-beloved son to be the sacrifice price to get us back. That's how God loves us. Then verse 5, he says he'll bless us. Listen to this. I will be like the dew to Israel. Dew, you know, the, the water on the grass in the morning. The blessing that was in the Old Testament, dry areas, What will be the result? Verse 5, he shall blossom like the lily, a beautiful lily flower. God is saying he's blessed them. Sin is so ugly, but he says, I'm going to restore beauty to you. Sin is exhausting. He says he'll restore our strength again by what he lists out here in verses 5 and following. Sin is ruinous, making us feel worthless. How must Gomer have felt? But God says he'll restore value to our lives. Sin makes us a discouragement to others. And God says he'll make us a delight to others like a pleasant fragrance. So if you study or read Hosea, make sure you read to the end so that you benefit from these gorgeous, encouraging words, verses 5 through 8. I'll read now. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon, which is a uh, figure of strength, a metaphor of strength. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. His fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. 
Reminds you of Galatians 5, 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. From God comes true spiritual fruit. Relationship toward God, relationship toward others. 2 Corinthians 2, 14. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Verse 15 For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 15. I got one verse left. I'm going to stop talking, close in prayer. Get ready for church. One verse, the last verse of Hosea. So it's the end of our mini theater of Hosea. It has shown us the ways of the Lord our God in loving us. It has helped us to see ourselves in the story of Gomer. It's rough. It's taken a while to kind of realize that we are Gomer. I am Gomer, right? You are Gomer. It's a call, a clear call to us to return to the Lord our God, be serious about even small sins. So we end the way God ends. We end the learning process about God, who he is, and how he loves sinners like us. With this last verse, yes. This last verse, before the curtain drops and the theater's over, you go home, exit. Listen to the last verse, Hosea 14, 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. See knowledge of God there? Knowledge, true knowledge, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. Know what? Know these things. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. To understand that God insists on holiness, that he provides love even when we can't be holy, that he gives us the righteousness through Christ, that he sanctifies us by his word and spirit, that he never gives up his love on us, never hesitates, never a hiccup, that he is love. Understand that these are the ways of the Lord, and it's right. It's the only right way. And walk in them by faith, right? Trust and obey. Those who are wise, let them understand how the gospel works. Understand who Christ is, right? This is how the beautiful story of Hosea ends. All right, let's pray.